0: Welcome to the Friday Men's Breakfast Podcast brought to you by the Chapel Podcast Network. In this sixth week of our series on the life of the Apostle Paul, Max Groene takes us through Paul and Barnabas's experiences in Lystra and Derby and teaches us how to see, share, and serve God in our lives. So please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 14 and join us on our journey as we continue to learn to be imitators of Paul as he imitated Jesus Christ. So we're going to start with what we start with every week. As I was prepping, I realized I only have to prepare about half of this talk because with Hunter's maps and memory verses, we'll be halfway there. So let's say it together. First Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And then Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then our big idea, which is that Paul modeled a life surrendered to Jesus Christ for us to follow. Today we're going to be in Acts 14, verses 8 through 28. And then this is going to be a little bit of context before we get in there. So again, Hunter's map. I moved the circle all the way over to our location for today. Thank you. It was very difficult. I had to use my mouse and drag it, um, but I got it there. Um, so our our... Our context for today is we're actually going to be looking at Lystra and Derby mostly, which were Roman colonies. They were a little more isolated than uh, the rest of Rome or or Greece, so they kind of have their own cultures. They have a lot of their own traditions, and that's something just to keep in mind as we go through today. I have the privilege of finishing the first uh, journey, the first mission journey. So we're going to go from Lystra to Derby, and then to Lystra, Iconium, Antioch, Pisidia, Pamphylia, Italia, and back to Antioch. But most of those are in like two verses. I promise we're not going to take that much time. But we are going to be finishing this journey of the first mission of Paul today. Um, And so with that, we're actually going to read our text. So Acts 14, verses 8 through 28. You can follow along. It will not be on the screen. Um, So you can use your own Bible or use an app. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priests of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushing out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men. they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on that next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Poseidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia, and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. So just a brief little text for today. Um, And this is going to be kind of our structure or framework as we go through today's text. It's going to be, we're going to look at how this text teaches us to see God, how to share God, and then how to serve God. So that's where we'll be together. Starting with how to see God, which is verses 8 through 14. So as I looked at this text, and we start right, right at the entrance to the city, um, I was struck that we see another healing. And as we, I was reading this healing, I felt like it didn't feel very new. Like it felt very repeated. Like we have seen many people who could not walk be healed in Scripture But obviously there's a lot that happens in this text that I've never read elsewhere in the Bible. The fact that they came out and started worshiping Barnabas and Paul as Zeus and Hermes was so different to me and really stuck out. So I wanted to dig deeper and say, what was so different about this healing? We've seen other people be healed that couldn't walk before. So what was different this time? And so in order to do that, I want to compare this healing to two other healings that we see in scripture. So the first of that would be Uh, Luke 5, 18 through 26, which is a healing by Jesus. And so I'll read this really quickly. So this is Christ's healing and it says, and behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, men, man, your sins are... And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. A very different response when Jesus heals somebody than when Paul does in Lyconia. The other healing that is a parallel to this is Acts 3, 1 through 10, and this will receive another response. So it says now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth who was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and rising him up and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and enter the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate for the temple, asking for alms. They were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So these are the three healings of people who couldn't walk that we get to see that kind of parallel one another. But what's made so different about these three different healings is the response that the people have. And as I was reflecting on that, why did people respond so differently to three different healings? I realized that people responded in like to what they were expecting. So people responded differently because they were expecting different things. So as we look at that passage in Luke, these are the Pharisees, the scribes. They were expecting a Messiah who would come in power to overthrow the oppressor. And when Jesus didn't do that, instead he traveled healing and preaching. They refused to believe that that power was of God. And so because what they were expecting of God and what they were expecting of the Messiah was so different than what Jesus did, they refused to believe that he was God in the flesh. Now, you, you, put, you parallel that with Acts 3. Right after Pentecost, all these believers have just been poured. They've seen the Holy Spirit poured upon them. They've seen miraculous signs, and they're so eager to see God move. And as they see a healing, they say, that's God. That has to be God. They were expecting God to move in amazing ways, And their minds were open to the ways that he moves. And so when they saw a miracle, they were so willing to accept that it was God. And it says that they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. But at our passage today, it's so different than that. See, what happens in Lyconia is that they are expecting different things. Or Lystra, sorry. In Lystra, they're expecting different things. They are worshiping Zeus and Hermes, and that's what they're expecting. And so when they see miraculous things, they try to fit these these miracles and ideas of what God is doing into their preconceived notion of deity. There's actually a, uh, there was kind of this lore in Lystra that would have been very common knowledge. That's something that everybody would have learned studying in the temple of Zeus. And it's this legend by some Latin poet named Ovid And he wrote that in that same region, in the in the uh, Phrygian hill country, earlier many many years ago, that Zeus and Hermes had already visited their city. And when they visited their city, most people shut them out because they were visiting in the bodies of mortals, and nobody recognized them. And what Zeus and Hermes did is, one elderly couple brought them in, and they turned their house into this huge temple. And then Zeus and Hermes went and wrecked everyone else's house that didn't welcome them in well. And so the people of this town see miraculous things happening, and they automatically just assume, oh, it's Zeus, it's Hermes, come back again. Therefore, we need to do better this time. We need to welcome them in. We need to offer sacrifices. But they missed it. They missed that this was a different God entirely. This was a real God of power offering healings. And they even refused to believe Paul and Barnabas as they spoke to them saying, we're not Zeus and we're not Hermes. Um, Another little tidbit is uh, when I read this, I was really confused because it felt like Paul was the one doing the healing, but then Barnabas got to be Zeus. And I've played like enough video games and watched enough Viking lore and stuff like that to know that Zeus is the best. So that would really confuse me. Well, Hermes was the messenger God, and so because Paul was doing most of the speaking, they just assumed that he would be the messenger. Um, and so as I was reflecting on this, these different things and what people were expecting and how it caused them to miss God, how it caused the Pharisees to say, you can't be God, Jesus, because you're not what we expected for the Messiah, what it co- when it caused the, the early Christians to believe with wonder and amazement, yes, God worked miracles in our lives. And then here in Lystra, for them to say, you must be Hermes and Zeus. We're not going to listen to you when you say that you're not Zeus and Hermes, and we're going to miss what God is doing because they weren't ready for it. What does that mean for us? And I think this kind of goes back to what Dale was speaking to a few weeks ago as he talked about syncretism. We have these values in our lives that were so they are so deeply embedded into us. And then when, when we read Scripture or when we, when we hear our pastors speak We're trying to to reconcile what we read in scripture and what we hear about God with these values that are already in our heart. It's the same thing that the Pharisees did with the Messiah. They tried to reconcile the power Jesus was showing with what they were expecting and what they wanted to see. And it's what they did in Lystra. They tried to reconcile this power of Paul and Barnabas doing healings with what they were expecting from Zeus and Hermes. And what I realized is we'll never see God unless we're willing to Bend our values and bend uh, what, we, what we respect and what we love to God's will instead of trying to bend God into our values. So we need to base our values on God and not base God on our values. And this is just kind of reiterating what Dale talked about a few weeks ago in syncretism. And it's a hard thing for us to do because all, every culture has wrapped in values to it. And so how do we try to mold our values to what God is doing? And that way, when we see miraculous signs, when we even experience miraculous signs and healings of our body or healings of our soul, we can, we can thank God for what he's doing and not miss out on that. So I think the first thing that we're learning from Paul and Barnabas' trip to Lystra is to see God, we have to have proper expectations of him, and we have to set aside everything that we that we think, and everything that we want God to align with in order to align ourselves with him. The next thing that we see here is how to share God. Well, yeah, how to share God. So after this happens, they start offering sacrifices to Paul and offering sacrifices to Barnabas, saying, you're Zeus, saying, you're Hermes. And Paul and Barnabas respond by saying, we're not We're not Hermes, we're not Zeus, we're just men. And let us tell you the good news. So I wanted, again, to kind of contrast this with um, something else that Paul did. So Paul shares the gospel here with the people of Lystra. And obviously, this is not something Paul has never done. Paul has shared the gospel everywhere he's gone. So I want to take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 5, just to look at a different way that Paul has shared the gospel in the past. And that says, um, for I delivered to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. This sounds so different than what he tells the people of Lystra. What he tells the people of Lystra, he says, um, let me find it. satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. There's no talk of the scriptures or of this promised Messiah or of the 12 disciples. It's a very different way that he's presenting the same gospel message, very different way that he's trying to share God with the people of Lystra. And so as I realized why it was so different, I think we have to recognize that Paul is widely recognized as the first missionary to the Gentiles, He's speaking to a different crowd here, and as he speaks to a different crowd about the same message, he words it in different ways. It makes great sense. Um, When I started working here at the chapel, I went into Travis Simone's office, and I said, Trav, you know, I'm trying to, like, pick up college students from campus on most Sundays. They're all coming to chapel in their jeans, and I'm wearing a tie. I feel so out of place. I said, I need to contextualize the gospel, Trav. I need to wear jeans and T-shirts on Sunday mornings. And Trav said, Max, welcome to Williamsburg. You wear a suit and a tie. That contextualizes the gospel in Williamsburg. And so, um, but we both had these competing ideas of doing the same thing, though. We wanted to make everything super accessible to those that we're trying to reach. For me, I thought that meant jeans and a T-shirt, and Trav educated me. (laughs) Um, "Wear, Wear a tie, he said. And so, what I think we learn from, from Paul here is that as we want to go and share the gospel, as we want to share God with other people, we have to contextualize that. And there are many different things that he does in order to contextualize the gospel as he talks. I think the first thing that he does is he makes the gospel and he makes God very accessible. The first thing that he wants to iterate is that he denies his divinity. He says, I'm not a God, I'm a man in the very same nature as you, making this gospel accessible to all other men and women and children who are hearing that. And I think that that is his first attempt to make the gospel and make God accessible. He he also invites them. He says, turn away from these vain things and serve the living God. It's accessible because they've been invited into it. And then he also kind of mentions the ways that God has already been providing for the people of Elisha, the way he's already been providing and loving these people, showing them common grace through the rain. And so the first thing that Paul does as he tries to share God with a new crowd of Gentiles is he makes the gospel message accessible. The next thing he does is he makes it very understandable. He starts with creation. And I love that, that Paul, as he explains the gospel, starts the same place, That our Bible does with creation. Anyone that was worshiping any God would have to have tried to find a way to explain creation. It's something that was already common and understandable. Um, And just by the very nature of God being creator, it gives God, it makes him worthy of praise and worthy of worship, that he deserves to be worshiped because he created everything, because he created us. And then he kind of contrasts this. He says, the living God in contrast to the vain things. You know, These people were so eager, so eager to encounter their gods that even when people said, we're not your gods, they still wouldn't believe them. And I think that that shows that maybe Zeus and Hermes hadn't really been working a lot in their lives. They're idols. They're vain things. They aren't living like our God is living. And by contrasting the God who is, is alive and make, working miracles and working healings and saving souls with Zeus and Hermes who have been absent ever since that day of lore where they came so many years ago in wrath to destroy all who didn't welcome them. I think they're helping them understand the difference between the living God and Jesus Christ and the gods that they were already serving. And then he made the gospel desirable. He said, we have good news for you. And I love how he explains this thing of common grace. And so common grace is the belief that um, God, God's glory kind of show, shines on everybody, that you don't have to know God to reap benefits from his good, his good deeds and his, his doing good in this world. And so he shares that um, these people of Lystra had been satisfied their hearts with food and gladness. There's a lot to be desired there, right? even earlier we said that we wish right now that we could be satisfied with the food of men's breakfast. Um, But he says that they have been satisfied with food and their hearts have been satisfied with gladness. There's something to be desired there. It's the same thing that's desired when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And he says, it's good news. And I love that he just paints God properly. So as this kind and benevolent being, he says, like, God, who you never even knew, was already caring for you. Every time that it rained, every time you had a bountiful harvest, God was caring for you and loving you. And that's a God that's worthy. That's a God that we want to serve. And so the next thing that Paul did is he made the gospel desirable. So I think that as we, what we learn from this is as we go about and as we try to share God with others, we need to make the gospel accessible, understandable, and desirable. But it's also worth knowing that although Paul contextualized the gospel, he never compromised on the gospel. I think it would have been, as I think about what I would have done in that, in that situation to try and explain who God is, the easiest thing that pops into my mind is these people already have a religion and a hierarchy of God's. Zeus being their chief God, Zeus being the God that has the maiden temple in their town, it would have been so easy to say, like, our God is like Zeus. He's the creator. He's the chief of all. But Paul doesn't do that because that would have been the same thing of trying to mold what they already believed in order to accept God into their preconceived beliefs and notions. And so as we go and we try to share God and share the gospel with others, we have to make it accessible, understandable, desirable, and, and really paint it in a way that's, that's all those things that people can grasp it, but not compromise on what the gospel is. God is not Zeus. God is Yahweh, three in one, the only living God. And so what we see is this beautiful picture of how to do evangelism, of how to share the word of God. And so that's another thing that we get to learn from this passage. So we've gone how to see God, how to share God, and now we learn how to serve God, verses 19 through 28. Um, well, so one of the things that really stuck out to me was that the Jews followed Paul and Barnabas um, from Antioch to Lystra in order to kind of start seeding dissent. Um, as people were worshiping them, it flipped really quickly, right? They went from your Zeus, your Hermes, your Zeus, your Hermes to let's stone him. And the reason for that is that these, these Jews who had already run Paul and Barnabas out of past cities are following them on their missional journey in order to make sure that nobody believes them. So I looked it up from Antioch to Lystra is over 100 miles, and I think that that just shows us the extent that people were willing to go through in order to make sure that the gospel didn't take root, traveling over 100 miles to some some distant city just to tell them, don't believe these guys, run them out of your town, murder them. Um, And it, it really just irons home that idea that the Jews were unable to accept God because they were waiting for the Messiah who was different than what they were expecting. And so their hate was so much that they were willing to travel around just to do that. But then we see um, Paul being stoned and thrown out of the city because they thought he was dead. But as he's not dead, he gets rescued by the disciples. They care for him, and they bring him back into the city. And so the rest of here, we see Paul continuing on on this journey, that he he has been able to see God, he's been able to share God, and he's living his life in a way to serve God. And so the many different things that I think we get to see from Paul And Barnabas are their sacrifice, their trust, their faith, that they're not idle, and then this need to make disciples. And so we start with their sacrifice. Um, We see Paul and Barnabas sacrifice in so many ways for the gospel. Paul, who had esteem, Paul, who had rapport and status, gave it all up on that road to Damascus to, to follow the Lord. And Paul and Barnabas, who are working earnestly and traveling around to do this things, keep getting run out of town after town. And then Paul heals a man. He heals a man. I've never, I've never made a lame man walk before. And after he does that, his reward is to get stoned, to be beat up so badly that they thought he was dead. It's humbling. And so we see. Paul and Barnabas sacrificing a lot for the kingdom of God and they feel like they've been called to the sacrifice and they do so and then later they talk they tell the the next disciples it won't be easy there is sacrifice that is needed if we're going to live out our faith and serve God it's what we see over and over and over again in scripture Jesus Christ God himself was the ultimate sacrifice and so us as as his followers as his disciples also make sacrifices. They also display so much trust and faith. I was shocked when I read that Paul was stoned to an inch of his life so that everybody thought he was dead. And then he goes right back into the city. He, he trusts God so much. He has such tremendous faith. And I said that we're on the, the, the turn of the mission trip. So he's going to go to Derby, and that's the end, and then he goes back through all the cities he's already traveled through. It is unbelievable to me that he goes back through every single city that ran him out. He goes back to Lystra. He goes to Derby and then back to Lystra where they just stoned him. The The trust and faith that Paul and Barnabas have placed in God is so incredible, Um, A little bit about me. I was raised in Williamsburg, and then I left for college and and seminary, and then I came back to Williamsburg. And as I was planning on coming back after seminary to start ministry somewhere, um, I really felt the Lord calling me here, and I didn't want to come back. And the reason I didn't want to come back is not because I don't like Williamsburg. I love Williamsburg. I have so much family. It's a great town. I love the chapel. The reason I didn't want to come back is because a lot of people my own age in Williamsburg had seen me living a life that I'm not proud of, see me living a life in sin when I wasn't walking with God, and it was really hard to come back here and just encounter that again. And I had no risk, I had no fear of being here, no fear for my life, but it was still really hard to move back here and just kind of re-engage with these people and and re-engage with everybody here and confront my own sinful past. It was terrifying to me. I don't know if I could have come back here if I thought I was gonna die. I would love to say I, I could be martyred for, for Christ, but I don't know if I could. It was scary enough. And here we see Paul and Barnabas go through every single city that already ran them out and tried to murder them. It's just a beautiful picture of trust in the Lord, a beautiful picture of just such tremendous faith that God is the sustainer as the bread of life, that he will sustain everything that we need every day. And it may not look how we think it's gonna look, But if we're willing to reorganize our values and our thoughts with what he's telling us, that he will sustain us. And the next thing that we see them do is they're not idle. Um, A few weeks ago, well, I guess it was like a year ago now, I was in a a one-on-one meeting with Elizabeth when she was my boss here. And uh, one thing that we prayed for together that day is we prayed... um, God, give us an opportunity to love somebody outside of my comfort zone today. Um, And that's something that I prayed here, and then I went on to campus right after. So I was driving downtown, and I passed somebody who was just walking. And they looked like they were walking to work or back from work, like they were in a uniform and walking. And I just drove right past and sat down at the coffee shop to meet the student I was going to meet. And as I sat down, I just thought, what am I doing? I literally 30 minutes ago prayed for God to put somebody in my path that I could just love or care for, saw somebody walking without a car and just drove past because I didn't want to stop and let a stranger in my car. Pre-COVID too, no, no excuse there. And I just thought, what an idle faith that I, I say I want to serve God. I say I want to love him and, and serve him with my entire life. But I'm waiting for something to fall on my doorstep. And even when that did happen, I didn't open the door. And here we see Paul and Barnabas not just saying, God, use us, God, send people to us, but going, being sent, going to town, to town, to town in dangerous situations for the gospel. They didn't just sit and pray, God, give me an opportunity. They went out and sought it. And I think that that's something that's so commendable for us as we try to serve God. Let us not be a church or a group that serves God with idle faith, waiting for things to just come here. But let us be a group that's willing to be out of our comfort zone, on mission, with action, going out and serving God. And the last way that we see them really serving God is they make disciples. It says um, in verse 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. And as I was reading about this text, I thought, that sounds pretty common. Of course, we make disciples. But it turns out that that Greek word for disciple is only ever used three times in Scripture. And one of those three times is the Great Commission, Matthew 28, where it says to go therefore and make disciples of all nations. So that really just hit me. Like, What is so different that Paul and, and Barnabas are doing here that it's literally described as fulfilling the Great Commission? And so as we've learned of how to see God and how to share God, I don't think that just sharing God or evangelizing is the next step. I think the next step is disciple making. And so the word disciple, it means to be a pupil or to cause one to be a pupil. And so I think as we look at Paul and Barnabas and we say, why is this just the end of their first mission trip? Why do they take more mission trips? How do we have this Bible? We have this, this New Testament because Paul didn't just go and share the gospel or share God and the good news. He repeatedly cared for the believers. He repeatedly cared for young believers. He really fulfilled the Great Commission by not just sharing the gospel and leaving, but creating disciples. Um, one of, there's a book that I love. It's called The Passion Generation by somebody named Grant Skeldon, And this book... Um, I started reading it because I felt like it would help me understand my own generation, which I think is kind of funny. So I'm a millennial, and millennials have a a pretty bad rap, Um, and I don't, I mean, I think I understand my age group, but there are a lot of things that are really confusing to me. Like I think it's really confusing how we're getting into this idea of um, relativism and and post-modernity that there's no truth anymore. And so I started reading this book, and what it was trying to do is it was trying to explain the millennial generation values and how they come from a place of passion and love that's just misguided, um, that we are so afraid of absolute truth because we're afraid that the absolute truth will hurt people. Um, So obviously, it's skewed and not right. So I was reading this book to help me understand it and help me be able to do ministry in this generation. And one of the quotes that really just jumped off the page to me in this book was this. He said, most Christians give their lives to Christ before the age of 18. But here's what I found. While most were saved when they were young, few were discipled when they were young, and many were never discipled at all. And that breaks my heart. It breaks my heart to think that there might be some 18, 19, 20-year-old out there who's trying to seek God and trying to serve God, but that there's nobody grabbing him by the arm and saying, let me help you. Let me help you navigate a really challenging world where every single thing you hear out there is contrary to the gospel. Let me disciple you. Let me help you as you deal with relational issues or addiction or anything else. Let me help you as you struggle to understand God because of all these preconceived values and notions in your life. Let me help you. And so I think that one of the ways that we're to serve God comes straight from the Great Commission. And we get to see Paul and Barnabas doing a great job fulfilling it here. Make disciples. And I think especially like if you're here today, you obviously are passionate about seeking God. And so for all of us here, are we being discipled or are we discipling someone else? And I feel like this is a great challenge for us, that we can go and find a young man um, or a college student or anything like that and say, let me help you navigate life and navigate your faith. Let me help you understand what God is calling you to. And as we do it, we make it understandable and desirable you know, and, and accessible. We use all those skills that we see Paul and Barnabas do. And so I think that that's what Paul and Barnabas have for us today. They teach us They teach us how to see God properly. They help us learn how to share God with those around us. And then they help us understand how we can serve him with our lives. Thanks for listening to the Friday Men's Breakfast podcast. I hope you will join us again next week as we continue learning lessons from the life of the Apostle Paul. For more information on the Friday Men's Breakfast, please visit wcchapel.org slash breakfast Have a great week.